0: Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message.
1: Take your Bibles and turn to Elijah, or to Elijah, to 1 Kings. There you will find the story of Elijah. As we move into our message six, a pity party for one, please. A pity party for one, please. As you'll see, the, uh, the, the, the against all odds was last week. I didn't change it, so you can just try to write that down on your thing. I noticed I didn't change it in the bulletin as well. But the pity party for one, please, as we look at the Prophet and Priest King series, looking at Elijah. Let me ask you, have you ever suffered uh, with any of these... Were you laughing? Oh, okay, I thought I heard a laugh. (laughs) Have any of you ever suffered from any of these emotions, thoughts, or problems as you look on the monitor? Despair, isolation, consequences, feeling people are trying to get revenge, disappointment, loneliness... Uh, you feel rudderless or worry, defeat, danger. The circumstances are leading you to anxiety. Have you ever felt any of those? I'm sure many of you have. Many of us will. It's a struggle that many of us have in life is these types of emotions and thoughts and problems. And they cause many things to us and sometimes even to suicidal thoughts. And that's what we see as we look in the life of Elijah today he begins to have thoughts of suicide or the fact that he has no hope. In last week's passage, we shared we share two reasons why it's important for us to courageously and boldly obey God's word in defiance of dire circumstances and despite the dangerous consequences we must face. We must stand in the gap for Christ. We do this for two reasons. For the glory of God and for the salvation of souls. God is glorified when we stand for him and hearts are turned by our testimony and through the truth of God's word. This battle between Yahweh and Baal that we saw last week was more than just a cosmic contest to see who could bring down fire, who could demonstrate who was the greatest God, who had more power or even the existence of who was God, but one that had everlasting power consequences. Last week, we read that this larger-than-life prophet was just a regular human, or this week, we're going to read that this larger-than-life uh, prophet was just a regular human like you and I. He suffered from ordinary afflictions like you and I do. We learned that Elijah's experience experiences danger. He experiences disappointment, discouragement, despair, defeatism, and depression after an overwhelming victory over Baal. A great victory, and then a very low valley. To set up the circumstances and consequences that lead to this emotional uh, roller coaster, I want to go back and look at 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 22 once more, and I believe this is on the screen. Then Elijah said to the people right before the contest, I, even I only, am left... Of the prophets of the Lord, but Baal prophets are 450 men. So, Father, I pray that you open our minds and hearts to this familiar story to many of us. For some, they may be hearing it anew, but in either way, Lord, open our hearts to the truths that we can find. Let us see the ways in which it points to you. Let us see the ways in which Elijah was a man like us, but yet you comforted him, you encouraged him, and you strengthened him. And Father, may you, Lord, be glorified in all that we do. In your name we pray, amen. So there you see his mindset before the battle, I am only left. We see last week he has this great victory. Those 450 men of the false prophets of Baal are slaughtered, and then it's Elijah who once again stands alone, but in victory. But there's five main observations as we work through this passage of 1 Kings chapter 19. The first one, if you're taking notes, is that Jezebel promises revenge against Elijah. Jezebel promises revenge against Elijah. Look at verse one. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. You and I must not miss the subtext in these two verses. For they help us to understand Elijah's state of mind in the rest of the chapter. Liam Gulliger in his study on Elijah remarks on this event. That on Mount Carmel, Elijah has seen God answer his prayer with fire. The people have acknowledged that the Lord is the true God. Baal worshipers have been humiliated, the false prophets destroyed. The three-year drought has been ended. Elijah's expectations are sky. High. Surely there's going to be a spiritual revival in Israel as the, as the king and the queen uh, repent of their sin and Israel repents and turns to worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. However, he goes on to write that then Jezebel threatens to kill Elijah. Not the response he was expecting. We see that her power is undiminished. She's as strong as ever. Whereas Elijah seems more abandoned and alone than ever before. Elijah plummets, he writes, into terror and despair, losing perspective, faith in and God and the will even to live. So you see the signs of victory, right? You can understand what Liam is saying here. You can see this in the end of the chapter verse 18, of chapter 18. There's judgment against the false prophets of Baal. What's interesting, King Ahab did not intervene, and the soldiers most likely took part, so it seems like there's a change of heart of King Ahab. The people of Israel declared with one voice, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. God sends the rain, ending the drought. King Ahab obeys Elijah's command to go up and to eat, signifying a celebration. And Elijah ran before the king to Jezreel. Now, you might have read that at the end of chapter chapter 18, I believe. And you would have probably said, okay, what's that about? But what you see in those days, after a great victory, a runner would run before the king. And they would run back to the city and shout the victory of the king and shout what God has done. So we see through the Holy Spirit, Elijah grabs up his cloak and he runs before the king, out running, it says, for almost 20 miles, the the chariot of of King Ahab as a runner declaring victory. But yet as he reaches that city, and Queen Jezebel is informed of what happens, you can just see the bottom drops out. What he thought was a victory was not. What's interesting, I thought, is I just read those two verses and in the chapter before, that Queen Jezebel did not attend this cosmic contest. And I've always wondered why. I guess that's one of the questions maybe when we get to heaven. Why didn't she come to see this great battle? And I'm not sure that King Ahab was looking for, forward to informing the queen of the outcome. I'm sure he was kind of worried about how she might react. Elijah thought the war was won. However, he was in for a rude awakening. So we see that Jezebel threatens him. The second observation that I see in this passage is in the next two verses as Elijah runs away in fear of his life. A great victory. God is shown as victorious, but yet he runs away at the queen's threat. Verse 3 says, he was afraid and he rose and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He left even the region of the Ten Commands. He left her, 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 her area of rule. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. I don't know, maybe you've said those words. It's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. From great victory, we come to a man who has no hope. He just wants to die. Elijah, after this this three and a half year battle, is mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually overwhelmed. Have you ever felt like that? sure you have in some respects. He has experienced what he determines is an empty victory. He isolates himself by traveling to the wilderness a hundred miles away from where he originally was. And I don't know if you noticed this, but in verse 3, he cuts himself off from the companionship of his servants. Now this is the first time he's actually addressed here, but we see he begins to isolate himself. Very much what people do when they're depressed, when they're struggling. He's overcome by weariness and exhaustion, and he wants to die. I think any psychologist today would, would, would tell him that he's depressed. Probably try to medicate him. Try to find some type of counseling. He's done everything that you and I think of as someone who is diagnosed as depressed. He is overwhelmed. In the end, he's just ready to die. I did the best I could, God, but it wasn't enough. Here I am again, all alone. Seems that Elijah's had enough. He served God boldly. He served God courageously. He stands as a man that's larger than life with a wonderful victory, yet he feels like he's a failure. I'm no better than my forefathers. And sadly, we read he's lost the will to live. Now, if you've never felt that way, you probably know someone that has. And this is a terrible feeling. The feel that God can no longer use you. That whatever you do, nothing will turn out right. Right. And Satan will use that as the recipe to stir you into such an emotional, mental, and spiritual state that you just become paralyzed, that you can no longer serve God, or that you really have no will to continue. And I believe many times there are Christians who are so paralyzed because of these effects that they're no longer standing for God and maybe even crying out, Lord, just take my life. But God is good. Thank you. And God's not done with Elijah. If this was the end of Elijah's story, it would be a sad story indeed. And I want to share with you, I don't want this to be the end of your story when you're physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually weak and exhausted. Because I believe God has more for you. There is a great victory that still awaits Elijah and those that are in Christ. Amen? He's never done with us. So we may have these feelings. We may have these thoughts. But let me tell you, it's not the end of the story. Because look at verse 5. We see that Elijah encounters an angel. Look at that. And as he lay down and he slept under the broom tree, just waiting for God to take his life. Behold, an angel, we read, touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Again, supernaturally, God provides not through ravens, not through birds or through a brook, but through an angel who cooks him a meal. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. This sounds like a Saturday or a Sunday morning afternoon for me. Eat and lay down. You know, I'm one of those guys that when I wake up in the morning, I rejoice because I think, today I get to take a nap. You know, is anyone else like that? Amen? Anybody? Come on. All right, there's a few of you. Thank you. That's not a point, by the way. But look at verse 7. And the angel of the Lord. Do you see that? There's something different here. There's a describer. Angel of the Lord. See that Lord in caps? That's the name Yahweh. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And let me share with you, this is a side note. The journey that God has for you is going to be too great for you. Paul says, who is sufficient for such things? To be ambassadors for Christ. We are not sufficient What's that phrase? Uh, God will never you get never give you more than you can handle. Uh, no, God will always give you more than you can handle. Hence, why it's always wonderful because God is the one doing it. We must remember that it's through God's strength. When we are weak, He is made stronger. Yahweh has not forgotten His servant. And he sends an angel to comfort and provide food and rest, and I would even say companionship. Like Jesus, God sent an angel to minister to this servant in the wilderness after harsh testing. Instead of this time of sending an angel, this angel is Jesus Himself in the pre-incarnate. When the Old Testament, when you see angel of the Lord, that's actually Jesus. In his pre-incarnate form. He sends the savior of the world and makes him dinner and comforts him. Arise and eat. The journey is too great for you, but we're here with you. So he encounters an angel. Now, obviously, I don't believe he knew that who that was at that time. He knew him when he came to the Mount Mount of Transfiguration and he came to witness who Jesus was. But then when we see in verse 8, that Elijah then encounters God himself. The whole verse isn't on here, there's a portion of it. Let me read in verse 8, and he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights. Interesting how that plays throughout the history, that, that 40 days and 40 nights to the mount of God at Mount Horeb. There he came to a cave and he lodged in, and behold, and you may see this on this monitor the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? God has a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Listen to Elijah's response, it's very telling, for he was going to say it twice. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and they've killed your prophets with the sword. I've been standing for your name, but your people have been terrible. Look at this. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Pity party for one, please. Verse 11, and he said, go out, if you continue in your scripture, in your word, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. God responds to that. Behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore at the mountain and he broke the mountain in pieces, uh, ro- uh, broken pieces, the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And then after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire as he was in once before. And after this fire, the sound of what? A low whisper. Look at verse 13, if you still have it in your Bible, please. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He asked the same question. Elijah answers the same as we saw before. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. they thrown down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword. All of this is true. And I, even I, only, left it took my life to take it away. It wasn't enough that they did you. Now they're coming after me. There's a man who's definitely having a pity party of one. And rightfully so in some cases. I couldn't imagine the mental, the spiritual, the, 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 you know, the physical exhaustion he was having after this three and a half year turmoil since he first appeared the king Ahab. What we see here in this passage is that he travels 100 miles from Jezreel to Beersheba. That was actually in the previous verses. And now God tells him to go another 200 miles to Mount Horeb. So he, he travels 300 miles after the battle at, uh, with, with uh, the 450 uh, prophets. This last journey of 200 miles takes him around five miles a day of walking. Now, as you come to Mount Horeb, that's a special place in God's world, in in our world. It's a place where God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, as you might recall. But it was also the place that God had Moses hidden in the cleft of the rock and God's glory passed by him. So Mount Horeb was a place that God revealed himself not only to Moses, but also to Elijah. So this is a special place that he brings them to. Now, God asks him questions, not because he doesn't know the answer. He knows what's going on in Elijah's life. And let me give you a word of encouragement, a little editorial side note, is God knows what's going on in your life. He knows what struggles you face. He knows what depression you're facing or what defeat you're facing. He knows each and every one of them. But he asks him a question so that Elijah may reflect on what he's saying. He wants to hear it in Elijah's own words. And let me tell you, sometimes we think that we cannot be honest with God. You know, we come to church with, you know, I've called it the great masquerade ball. We all come with our paper faces on display. We want people to see. But let me share with you this. And then we do that with people. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm fine. I'm perfect. Life is good. God doesn't want that. God knows exactly what's going on in your heart. And he wants you to be honest. And I love that's what, when you read the Psalms, David's just being honest. Even when he feels that God is nowhere there. Do you ever feel that God is not involved in your life? that he's far from you? Do you ever felt like, hey, I've sinned so much, how could God ever love me? I mean, I do, I struggle with that. There are times that I don't ask for God to take my life, but I say, would you just come and rapture me now? I'm ready for that redeemed body. I'm ready for that redeemed heart. I want a redeemed mind. It can throw us into a tailspin. Be it God does something wonderful. So I, I say all that to say be honest with God. Quote the Psalms if possible. But God asks these questions to prompt Elijah to reflect on what is worrying him. He says, I've done everything you've asked, but still I'm alone. And now they seek to kill me. What was it all for? And I will tell you, the Christian life many times feels like we're pushing this giant rock up a slope of a hill only to lose our, our, our footing and to find that it falls back. Or to find that there's an object in front of us and it's difficult to push that rock over. Do you know, understand what I'm saying? Many times the Christian life will feel that way. Just when we seem that, 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 that the culture is moving more towards Christ, you all of a sudden you see the culture take so many steps back. You think today is no better than yesterday. We're no different than the forefathers of Israel. What good is it to continually, boldly and courageously following God 10 and verse 10 and verse 14 shows the state of his mind, the self-pity. I'm doing it all for you. I've been jealous for your name. I've only been faithful in serving you. I'm all alone and everyone is out to kill me. He feels forsaken and abandoned. God then reveals his power through the wind and through the earthquake and the fire, yet he's not there. And I say that because I think many times we're looking for God in these big, powerful moments. But yet many times God, even though he may be there, his presence isn't felt. Jesus knew that. That's why people always uh, uh, were attracted to him. Because they wanted to see great power, great demonstrations of miracles. But God knew what was in their hearts. Yet God's comfort doesn't come through the power of the wind, the earthquake, or fire. But if you'll notice, his comfort comes through his word. His comfort comes through his word. In verse 15, God does a miraculous thing. For the fifth point... God recommissions Elijah. He takes this man who is tired, who is filled with self-pity, who even has suicidal thoughts in a way, who just despairs of life, who's exhausted, and he puts him back in the game. What? Now, I, I've been a basketball and a, and a, and a soccer coach the one thing you don't do is take a poor player and put him back in the game. I remember one time, we were, we were always, we were a small school and we were always undersized. Uh, didn't have a, 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 the greatest talent, but we were always playing these bigger schools. And one time, the one thing that we could do is our, our, our young men could press pretty well. You know what I mean, press? Full court press. Put pressure on the ball, try to turn over the ball. That seemed to be about the only way that we could stop them and try to score and I had this young man, he was my best player, his name was Robert, and we were pressing so much. Our little sign was this diamond, that meant press, you know, as I'm on the sideline. And the game is, is, is we're, we're, try, we're keeping up just a little bit, I could see our players are tough, but I couldn't take Robert out, he's pretty much my, my best player, he's the captain of the team, he's the leader, and he's at the point of the press. And all of a sudden, they score again, or we score. And all of a sudden, Robert looks at me, and I do the press sign, continue press. And we've been pressing for a good portion of the game. And once again, near the game, I'm doing it. I could just see his face dejected. So I do what any coach can now These guys are tired. I, you know, I bring him back in. I try to encourage them during a timeout. we got to keep going. we got to keep pushing. But as I'm going through this, this one-minute uh, timeout, I'm looking at their faces. And I'm seeing that the last thing I can do to these young teenage boys is put them out there and ask them to press. I realized they couldn't do it anymore. So I set him down, which was going to hurt the team. And I said, guys, go out there and just do your best. We're, we're not going to press any longer in many ways, that's going to signal our defeat. Give Robert the break that he could and bring him back out there. I don't know what the end of the game is. It doesn't matter. But who sends in an exhausted player? God did. But not before comforting him, encouraging him, and sustaining him. He recommissions and that's what God does. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to him, go on your way to the wilderness Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of uh, Nishma, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of uh, Shaphat, of Abel Meloha. You, um, I don't think he was Hawaiian, but we're just going to go with that. You shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And we'll end there. For he says, the one who escapes him will be killed by this one, and so on and so forth. What does God do to this warrior who seems to be at the end of his rope and is putting up his his hand and saying, Coach, get me out of the game. I want out. Now, you and I usually don't like players like that. We don't think much of them. But if anyone could say, Coach, take me out, Elijah would be one. Maybe you're like that sometimes. It's just too tough. This living the Christian life is very difficult. Being the mother that I'm supposed to be is too difficult. I can't do it anymore. Being the husband is too difficult. Or being that employee who wants to serve God and your employer. You just, I just can't do it any longer. Let someone else carry the load. God does. Is recommission. He gives him three tasks and a word of encouragement. Anoint Hazel, anoint Jehu, anoint Elijah, Elisha to replace you as a prophet. And then he does something wonderful. He informs him that he's not alone. Look at verse 18. After giving him those tasks, he says this in verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. What is he saying there? Elijah, you are not alone. You are not alone. And I would share with you husbands, you need to tell that to your wife. In the conduct of the home, husband or wife, you need to share that with your husband. You need to share that with your employees, with your neighbors, with those you love. You are not alone. We need those words of encouragement. We need the strength to know. And I think that's what's so wonderful about a church that God, when he left, did not leave us alone, did he? But I will be with you until the end of the age. And then he brings us together as a community so that we may be strengthened and encouraged, and never feel like you are alone. If you're here this morning and in this crowd, you feel that you are alone, let me share with you, you are not. Not only if you're a Christ one, if you're one of Christ and God's children, God is with you. But let me tell you, we are here to run this life alone. You do not need to roll that stone up that hill yourself. Let us bear your burden. Now God provided for Elijah by providing food, companionship, rest, and even exercise, as he tells him, to work this out. But he also gave him a mission. And that's what you and I need you and I need to realize that we need to take care of our physical body and our mental body, our emotional state, as well as trust God in our spiritual state as in all these things. And I want to share with you as we're getting near the end, is there's three ways that God is going to do this as he provides comfort and relief and support. He's going to do it through three ways. And you and I need to be open to this, understand it, for God will use it in this way. First, God provides comfort, relief, and support through his children. The apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 6-2 that you and I are to bear one another's Uh, burdens. Many times God sends people our ways to encourage us, to help us, to carry the load, to remind us that we are loved and that we are not alone in this hostile world. This is the strength of the local church, the visible expression of Christ's love for us. It's why the Holy Spirit has given each regenerated reliever a spiritual gift so that we may build each other up. It's why he commands us to love one another, to care for one another and all the one another's of the Bible. In Romans chapter 12, you may want to write this down, Romans 12 uh, chapter 9 through 21 gives us all these one another's that you and I are to do to help one another, especially when we're struggling with anxiety and worry and depression and despondency. It's why he commands us to do so. No Christian is alone in dealing with worry, anxiety, depression, but we are to reach out to one another. Let me share with you, we are not to isolate ourselves as Elijah did from God's source of comfort and relief. It breaks my heart because I know there are people in our church that are struggling with this and they are not here today to receive the joy that God has in His bro- in, in brothers and sisters coming together. So I would ask you to encourage them as you encourage yourself. Let's take to heart the words of Solomon, who wrote, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Now, I don't want to to make that frivolous by saying, hey, buck up. No, but a good word, one that comes in with empathy and listens and asks questions and then encourages others. That's what you and I are called to do. So, if I were to give you a word of encouragement, I would say this invite others into your life, do not isolate yourself. And too many have done that to their demise. Number two. God provides comfort, relief, and support through his work. The disciples probably felt very much like Elijah after the crucifixion of Christ. After witnessing many healing miracles, such as the lame made to walk, or the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, and the dead raised to life. After watching other supernatural events, such as the feeding of the 5,000 and the 7,000, Jesus walking on water, the calming of the storm, and the casting out of the demons. They suffered from disappointment, discouragement, depression. They too were worried about the dangers from the Jews. After witnessing hundreds of people cry out that Jesus was the son of David in celebratory worship, they watched in horror as Jesus was betrayed by one of their own, arrested, tried, tortured, and crucified. What you and I today call Good Friday, for them, would have been Black Friday. Scripture records their silence and an isolation as Sunday comes. Sunday morning finds uh, finds Jesus resurrected from the tomb, but it's not the disciples who find the empty tomb, but the women who've come to prepare his body. John records their condition and state of mind when he writes in John chapter 20, verse 19, that the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Consider of the moment the state of the mind of Peter who before the crucifixion declared boldly that he would not only deny, not only not deny Christ, but he would go to the death in the defense of Jesus, only to succumb and deny him three times. Do you think he was eager to face Jesus on that Sunday morning? Maybe, maybe surprised, elated, filled with joy, but eventually He would come to remember his courageous pledge, but also his humiliating failure amid peer pressure. Could you imagine him wanting to speak on Jesus? And Jesus saying, Peter, you and I got something to talk about. But what's so wonderful about Christ, as he takes time during those 40 days or so, to encourage Peter and his disciples not to reprimand them, In John chapter 21, we're not going to take the time to look through it. But Jesus is making them breakfast. Just as he did for Elijah, uh, probably a thousand years before that. He's making them breakfast. Well, maybe Elijah wasn't breakfast, I don't know. But he's making them some breakfast of the fish. And he says, Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, tend to my sheep. Peter, feed my sheep. What did Jesus do? He put them back into the game. He recommissioned them. He encouraged them. Three times Jesus gives them a mission, a purpose. They were to take care of those that belong to Jesus. And before he ascends to heaven, Jesus gives them one last mission. You are to, to receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jesus lovingly and tenderly recommissions those that have failed him, empowering and encouraging them to a work that will turn the world upside down. So here's a word of encouragement get to work. Get to work. As a Christian, you're to be involved in the game. I know that you are struggling emotionally. You're overwhelmed physically and mentally and spiritually. Your juices are running low. But let me encourage you, find strength in God's people and in his work. Get back to work. That's why get to the exercise that you need. Realize that God is not done with you. But number three, and I must go on here, is that God throws, shows his support, provides through his word. Through his children, through his work, and through his word. God responds tenderly and truthfully to Elijah. And so does He do to so today? Is that He must point to the truth? If you were to look at Philippians chapter four, four through eight, Dustin took this to this passage some time ago. But he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Then he goes on to say, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart. And then he goes on to say, what is ever a true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and if there is any excellent, think on these things. And some of you say, well, you know what? It's too hard. I can't meditate on scripture. But let me tell you, if you can worry, you can meditate on scripture. What do you think meditation is? It's just worry. It's the other side of the coin. Satan wants you to worry. God wants you to meditate. It's just focusing on something. So God wants you to focus on his word and on his truth. So let me give you this word of encouragement. Get into the word of God. Get into the word of God. God can get through that depression. He can get through that worry, that feeling of defeatism through his children, through his work, and through his word. That's what he did for Elijah. It's what he did for the disciples. And that's the recipe for you and I. I'd like to give you a pastoral note. I don't have long to do this. But I want to encourage you that in your worry or your anxiety or your defeatism, for many people, sometimes they believe that's a result of sin, but that's not always the case. For there's many times that God has wired us in such a way that we sometimes, to use the lack of a better term, we can be weaker in our emotions or in our mental state or even spiritually. That's not sin. The Bible gives us not only Elijah, but talks of Jeremiah, Job, David, and Paul having that state of mind. And they were not sinning at the time. Where it comes into sin is if you are anxious or worrying or feel despondent about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. For the Bible says that's not trusting God. He says in Matthew 6, don't be anxious over these things but trust God. So where anxiety, worry, defeatism, where Elijah could have fallen into sin here, or Jeremiah, is when you do not trust God. And that can be a very fine line. So if I can summarize here today, do not fall into that sin of not trusting God. Trust him, for he sends his children, his work, and his word to encourage you. And may God bless you as you're pushing that rock up a steep hill, as God has called us to courageously and boldly obey his word in defiance of dire circumstances and dangerous consequences. Let's follow after him. Find comfort in the fellowship of other Christians. Find purpose as an ambassador of Christ and be strengthened and guided by the word of God. Father, we just thank you for this time. As we come, let us pause to consider and then to pray and respond for your goodness and your love towards us. There are many times that we are like Elijah, that we are struggling physically, mentally, emotionally, and yes, spiritually. We, like Elijah, feel that we're all alone and we just want to be taken out of the game. Father, I pray that you would encourage us For we see that you do take time to give us a breather, so to speak. You encourage us through your children. You encourage us through your word. And you encourage us by putting us to work. I pray that you would challenge and encourage any here that are suffering any now with any depression, despondency, defeatism. Lord, and let that be shown to the rest that we may come and just embrace them and love them. Not fall into isolation. But recognize your church. In your name we pray. Amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org.